Chapter Four of The Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Four. When Mr. George Amberson Minifer came home for the holidays at Christmas tide in his sophomore year, probably no great change had taken place inside him, but his exterior was visibly altered. Nothing about him encouraged any hope that he had received his comeuppance. On the contrary, the yearners for that stroke of justice must yearn even more itchingly. The gilded youth's manner had become polite, but his politeness was of a kind which democratic people found hard to bear. In a word, Monsieur le Duc had returned from the gay life of the capital to show himself for a week among the loyal peasants belonging to the old chateau, and their quaint habits and costumes afforded him a mild amusement. Cards were out for a ball in his honour, and this pageant of the tenantry was held in the ballroom of the Amberson Mansion the night after his arrival. It was, as Mrs. Henry Franklin Foster said of Isabel's wedding, a big Amberson-style thing, though that wise Mrs. Henry Franklin Foster had long ago gone the way of all wisdom, having stepped out of the Midland town, unquestionably into heaven, a long step, but not beyond her powers. She had successors, but no successor, the town having grown too large to confess that it was intellectually led and literarily authoritated by one person, and some of these successors were not invited to the ball for dimensions were now so metropolitan that intellectual leaders and literary authorities loomed in outlying regions unfamiliar to the Ambersons. However, all old citizens, recognizable as gentry, received cards, and of course so did their dancing descendants. The orchestra and the caterer were brought from away, in the Amberson manner, though this was really a gesture, perhaps one more of habit than of ostentation, for servitors of gaiety as proficient as these importations were nowadays to be found in the town. Even flowers and plants and roped vines were brought from afar. Not, however, until the stock of the local florist proved insufficient to obliterate the interior structure of the big house in the Amberson way. It was the last of the great, long-remembered dances that everybody talked about. There were getting to be so many people in town, that no later than the next year there were too many for everybody to hear of even such a ball as the Ambersons. George, white-gloved, with a gardenia in his buttonhole, stood with his mother and the Major, embowered in the big red-and-gold drawing-room downstairs, to receive the guests, and standing thus together the trio offered a picturesque example of good looks persistent through three generations. The Major, his daughter, and his grandson were of a type all Amberson. Tall, straight, and regular, with dark eyes, short noses, good chins, and the grandfather's expression, no less than the grandson's, was one of faintly amused condescension. There was a difference, however. The grandson's unlined young face had nothing to offer except this condescension. The grandfather's had other things to say. It was a handsome, worldly old face, conscious of its importance, but persuasive rather than arrogant, and not without tokens of sufferings withstood. The Major's short white hair was parted in the middle, like his grandson's, 
and in all he stood as briskly equipped to the fashion as exquisite young George. Isabel, standing between her father and her son, caused a vague amazement in the mind of the latter. Her age, just under forty, was for George a thought of something as remote as the moons of Jupiter. He could not possibly have conceived such an age ever coming to be his own. Five years was the limit of his thinking in time. Five years ago he had been a child not yet fourteen, and those five years were an abyss. Five years hence he would be almost twenty-four, what the girls he knew called one of the older men. He could imagine himself at twenty-four, but beyond that his powers staggered and refused the task. He saw little essential difference between thirty-eight and eighty-eight, and his mother was to him not a woman but wholly a mother. He had no perception of her other than as an adjunct to himself, his mother. Nor could he imagine her thinking or doing anything, falling in love, walking with a friend, or reading a book, as a woman and not as his mother. The woman, Isabel, was a stranger to her son, as completely a stranger as if he had never in his life seen her or heard her voice. And it was to-night, while he stood with her receiving, that he caught a disquieting glimpse of this stranger whom he thus fleetingly encountered for the first time. Youth cannot imagine romance apart from youth. That is why the roles of the heroes and heroines of plays are given by the managers to the most youthful actors they can find among the competent. Both middle-aged people and young people enjoy a play about young lovers, but only middle-aged people will tolerate a play about middle-aged lovers. Young people will not come to see such a play, because for them middle-aged lovers are a joke, and not a very funny one. Therefore, to bring both the middle-aged people and the young people into his house, the manager makes his romance as young as he can. Youth will indeed be served, and its profound instinct is to be not only scornfully amused, but vaguely angered by middle-aged romance. So, Standing beside his mother, George was disturbed by a sudden impression, corning upon him out of nowhere, as far as he could detect, that her eyes were brilliant, that she was graceful and youthful, in a word, that she was romantically lovely. He had one of those curious moments that seemed to have neither a cause nor any connection with actual things. While it lasted, he was disquieted not by thoughts— for he had no definite thoughts, but by a slight emotion like that caused in a dream by the presence of something invisible, soundless, and yet fantastic. There was nothing different or new about his mother, except her new black and silver dress. She was standing there beside him, bending her head a little in her greetings, smiling the same smile she had worn for the half-hour that people had been passing the receiving group. Her face was flushed, but the room was warm, and shaking hands with so many people easily accounted for the pretty glow that was upon her. At any time she could have passed for twenty-five or twenty-six. A man of fifty would have honestly guessed her to be about thirty, but possibly two or three years younger, and though extraordinary in this, she had been extraordinary in it for years. There was nothing in either her looks or her manner to explain George's uncomfortable feeling and yet it increased, becoming suddenly a vague resentment, 
as if she had done something unmotherly to him. The fantastic moment passed, and even while it lasted he was doing his duty, greeting two pretty girls with whom he had grown up, as people say, and warmly assuring them that he remembered them very well, an assurance which might have surprised them in anybody but Georgie Minifer. It seemed unnecessary, since he had spent many hours with them no longer ago than the preceding August. They had with them their parents and an uncle from out of town, and George negligently gave the parents the same assurance he had given the daughters, but murmured another form of greeting to the out-of-town uncle, whom he had never seen before. This person George absently took note of as a queer-looking duck. Undergraduates had not yet adopted bird. It was a period previous to that in which a sophomore would have thought of the Sharon girl's uncle as a queer-looking bird, or perhaps a funny-faced bird. In George's time every human male was to be defined, at pleasure, as a duck. But duck was not spoken with admiring affection, as in its former feminine use to signify a deer. On the contrary, duck implied the speaker's personal detachment and humorous superiority. An indifferent amusement was what George felt when his mother, with a gentle emphasis, interrupted his interchange of courtesies with the nieces to present him to the queer-looking duck, their uncle. This emphasis of Isabel's, though slight, enabled George to perceive that she considered the queer-looking duck a person of some importance but it was far from enabling him to understand why. The duck parted his thick and longish black hair on the side. His tie was a forgetful-looking thing, and his coat, though it fitted a good enough middle-aged figure, no product of this year or of last year either. One of his eyebrows was noticeably higher than the other, and there were whimsical lines between them, which gave him an apprehensive expression but his apprehensions were evidently more humorous than profound, for his prevailing look was that of a genial man of affairs, not much afraid of anything whatever. Nevertheless, observing only his unfashionable hair, his eyebrows, his preoccupied tie and his old coat, the Olympic George set him down as a queer-looking duck, and having thus completed his portrait, took no interest in him. The Sharon girls passed on, taking the queer-looking duck with them, and George became pink with mortification as his mother called his attention to a white-bearded guest waiting to shake his hand. This was George's great-uncle, old John Minifer. It was old John's boast that in spite of his connection by marriage with the Ambersons, he never had worn and never would wear a swallow-tail coat. Members of his family had exerted their influence uselessly. At eighty-nine, conservative people seldom form radical new habits, and old John wore his Sunday suit of black broadcloth to the Amerson Ball. The coat was square, with skirts to the knees. Old John called it a Prince Albert, and was well enough pleased with it, but his great-nephew considered it the next thing to an insult. George's purpose had been to ignore the man, but he had to take his hand for a moment whereupon old John began to tell George that he was looking well, though there had been a time, during his fourth month, when he was so puny that nobody thought he would live. The great-nephew, in a fury of blushes, dropped old John's hand with some vigour, and seized that of the next person in the line. 
"'Member you very well indeed,' he said fiercely. The large room had filled, and so had the broad hall and the rooms on the other side of the hall, where there were tables for whist. The imported orchestra waited in the ballroom on the third floor, but a local harp, cello, violin, and flute were playing airs from The Fencing Master in the hall, and people were shouting over the music. Old John Minifer's voice was louder and more penetrating than any other, because he had been troubled with deafness for twenty-five years, heard his own voice but faintly, and liked to hear it. "'Smell of flowers like this always puts me in mind of funerals,' he kept telling his niece, Fanny Minifer, who was with him, and he seemed to get a great deal of satisfaction out of this reminder. His tremulous yet strident voice cut through the voluminous sound that filled the room, and he was heard everywhere. "'I always got to think of funerals when I smell so many flowers.' And as the pressure of people forced Fanny and himself against the white marble mantelpiece, he pursued this train of cheery thought, shouting, "'Right here's where the Major's wife was laid out at her funeral. They had her in a good light from that big bow window.' He paused to chuckle mournfully. "'I suppose that's where they'll put the Major when his time comes.' Presently George's mortification was increased to hear this sawmill droning harshly from the midst of the thickening crowd. "'Ain't the dancing broke out yet, Fanny? Hoopla! Let's push through and go see the young women folks crack their heels. Start the circus! Hoopsie-daisy!' Miss Fanny Minifer, in charge of the lively veteran, was almost as distressed as her nephew George but she did her duty and managed to get old John through the press and out to the broad stairway, which numbers of young people were now ascending to the ballroom. And here the sawmill voice still rose above all others. "'Solid black walnut, every inch of it, balustrades and all. Sixty thousand dollars' worth of carved woodwork in the house. Like water. Spent money like water. Always did. Still do. Like water.' God knows where it all comes from. He continued the ascent, barking and coughing among the gleaming young heads, white shoulders, jewels, and chiffon, like an old dog slowly swimming up the rapids of a sparkling river. While down below, in the drawing-room, George began to recover from the degradation into which this relic of early settler days had dragged him. What restored him completely was a dark-eyed little beauty of nineteen, very knowing in lustrous blue and jet. At sight of this dashing advent in the line of guests before him, George was fully an Amberson again. "'Remember you very well indeed,' he said, his graciousness more earnest than any he had heretofore displayed. Isabel heard him and laughed. "'But you don't, George,' she said. "'You don't remember her yet, though of course you will.' Miss Morgan is from out of town, and I'm afraid this is the first time you've ever seen her. You might take her up to the dancing. I think you've pretty well done your duty here. "'Be delighted,' George responded formally, and offered his arm, not with a flourish, certainly, but with an impressiveness inspired partly by the appearance of the person to whom he offered it, partly by his being the hero of this fete, and partly by his youthfulness, for when manners are new they are apt to be elaborate. The little beauty entrusted her gloved fingers to his coat-sleeve, and they moved away together. 
Their progress was necessarily slow, and to George's mind it did not lack stateliness. How could it? Musicians, hired especially for him, were sitting in a grove of palms in the hall and now tenderly playing, Oh, Promise Me, for his pleasuring. Dozens and scores of flowers had been brought to life and tended to this hour that they might sweeten the air for him while they died. And the evanescent power that music and floral scents hold over youth stirred his appreciation of strange, beautiful qualities within his own bosom. He seemed to himself to be mysteriously angelic, and about to do something which would overwhelm the beautiful young stranger upon his arm. Elderly people and middle-aged people moved away to let him pass with his honoured fare beside him. Worthy middle-class creatures, they seemed, leading dull lives, but appreciative of better things when they saw them, and George's bosom was fleetingly touched with a pitying kindness. And since the primordial day when caste or heritage first set one person, in his own esteem, above his fellow-beings, it is to be doubted if anybody ever felt more illustrious or more negligently grand than George Amberson Minifer felt at this party. As he conducted Miss Morgan through the hall, toward the stairway, they passed the open double doors of a card-room, where some squadrons of older people were preparing for action, and, leaning gracefully upon the mantelpiece of this room, a tall man, handsome, high-mannered, and sparklingly point device, held laughing converse with that queer-looking duck, the Sharon girl's uncle. The tall gentleman waved a gracious salutation to George, and Miss Morgan's curiosity was stirred. "'Who is that?' "'I didn't catch his name when my mother presented him to me,' said George. "'You mean the queer-looking duck?' "'I mean the aristocratic duck.' That's my Uncle George, Honourable George Amberson. I thought everybody knew him. He looks as though everybody ought to know him, she said. It seems to run in your family. If she had any sly intention, it skipped over George harmlessly. Well, of course, I suppose most everybody does, he admitted. Out in this part of the country, especially. Besides, Uncle George is in Congress. The family like to have someone there. Why? Well, it's sort of a good thing in one way. For instance, my Uncle Sidney Amberson and his wife, Aunt Amelia, they haven't got much of anything to do with themselves. Get bored to death around here, of course. Well, probably Uncle George will have Uncle Sidney appointed minister or ambassador, or something like that, to Russia or Italy or somewhere, and that'll make it pleasant when any of the rest of the family go travelling or things like that. I expect to do a good deal of travelling myself when I get out of college." On the stairway he pointed out this prospective ambassadorial couple, Sidney and Amelia. They were coming down, fronting the ascending tide, and as conspicuous over it as a king and queen in a play. Moreover, as the clear-eyed Miss Morgan remarked, the very least they looked was ambassadorial. Sidney was an Amberson exaggerated, more pompous than gracious, too portly, flushed, starched to a shine, his stately jowl furnished with an Edward the Seventh beard. Amelia, likewise full-bodied, showed glittering blonde hair exuberantly dressed. 
a pink fat face cold under a white-hot tiara, a solid cold bosom under a white-hot necklace, great cold gloved arms, and the rest of her beautifully upholstered. Amelia was an Amberson-born herself, Sidney's second cousin. They had no children, and Sidney was without a business or a profession. Thus both found a great deal of time to think about the appropriateness of their becoming excellencies. And as George ascended the broad stairway, they were precisely the aunt and uncle he was most pleased to point out, to a girl from out of town, as his appurtenances in the way of relatives. At sight of them the grandeur of the Amberson family was instantly conspicuous as a permanent thing. It was impossible to doubt that the Ambersons were entrenched, in their nobility and riches, behind polished and glittering barriers which were as solid as they were brilliant, and would last. End of chapter.